We're going to finish the book of Malachi today, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3 through chapter 4. Malachi is the last word until Christmas, the last word from God until we hear his son squall out in a barn laid in a manger. Malachi causes us to lean in and look forward and long for something better. It's been a, it's been a powerful book, but it's been a very um, sharp book. I'll put it that way. A book that uh, pierces, lays us open before God where we can't hide, where God is very clear about who we are and what our sin is before Him. And it's meant to pull us and prod us and cause us to long for one who is greater than Malachi. One who is not just a messenger, but the message himself in flesh. And we remember that today as we look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 16 through chapter 4. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. And I want to encourage you to uh, focus on God's Word. I know it's that time of the year where we are worried about things. We're thinking about finances. We're thinking about plans for the holidays. We're thinking about um, what the next few weeks are going to look like in the life of our family. And yet, we want to push those things aside and with our hearts and our minds, zero in on what God would specifically say to us by His Spirit in these moments so that we would be different. We don't come to this time to lead the same. We want to be different. We want to have more joy in Christ. And God so kindly speaks to us in His Word. And He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man who spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. For you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horab. For all Israel, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Oh God, I pray that we would hear your word today as a word of warning. But mixed in this warning, we would hear the hope of the gospel found only in Jesus Christ. We would look to the Son and be blinded by His grace and His mercy. Be in awe of His power and authority that He has used for our good to save us from our sins. God, would we look to the one who will be our light forever. His name is Jesus in whom we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis, during the winter, becomes one of my best friends. If you know me, you know I can't stand winter. And I dread, even through the months of fall, when everybody's so excited about the leaves changing and the color and, you know, the coolness in the air, I kind of get depressed because I know what's coming. Winter is coming and it becomes more and more depressing every year for me. I don't like snow. Some of you were rebuking me last week about how pretty snow is and all of that. I see death and I see despair in the coming of snow and winter. C.S. Lewis died in 1963. He's one of the most influential writers of his day, one of the most influential writers ever in Christianity. And in his writings, there's an overall theme in which he agrees with me and affirms all of my views about winter being a product of the curse of sin in the world. This cold, depressing time in our lives where the only highlight is Christmas. It's the only thing winter's got going for it is Christmas morning, and then the rest of it is just blah, drear, cold, misery. And in the writings of C.S. Lewis, he sees that very clearly and he articulates that very vividly over and over again. We see this in the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically in the story, in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Winter represents the rule of evil and the white witch. And spring represents the coming of, of Aslan, this good king that is coming to break the curse of winter. And if you ever read the book, you, for seven chapters, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I encourage you to read it, you're, you're sort of leaning in. You're figuring things out. What, what's going on? Who are these people? What's the problem? How is this going to be solved? And, and for seven chapters, you read the book without any mention of Aslan, without any mention of this lion, lion that's going to come and break the curse of winter, And then all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, this beaver, this beaver makes mention of the lion. And he does so in this way. He says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. So you begin to get a glimpse of spring coming. This is the way I feel every spring, that the warmth in the air. And, And I say to myself, Aslan is on the move. Baseball is coming. (laughs) Spring is in the air. Things are going to turn green again. But, But you feel that way when you read those words in the book. And then Lewis begins to describe the reaction of the characters 
of the book, and he says this, when they hear these words, Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. He says, and a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if something with enormous meaning, either terrifying, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all of your life and are always wishing you could get into the dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside them. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or something delight, some delightful strain of music had floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. But there was no neutrality at the mention of his name. At the coming of spring, it did something to everyone who heard of his name. And that's the way we feel at this point in the book of Malachi. The whole book has been dark and dreary. The whole book talks of the curse of sin and death. A people who have chosen by their sin to separate themselves from the presence of their Lord, from the presence of God himself in their worship, in their idolatry, in their adultery, in the way that they are living their lives. They have sought to push God away and Malachi has explained the coldness, the darkness, the curse of their sin in these very, very vivid, descriptive ways. And you get to the point in Malachi that some of us have week after week and we heard these sermons where there's no hope. Gosh, we're bad. We are dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. And some of us leave as if there is no hope. But over and over in the book of Malachi, there is the mention of a name, the Lord of hosts. There is the mention of one who is bringing hope to his people amidst the cold, dark curse. And throughout, hopefully, you've seen him. Throughout, hopefully, uh, throughout, you, when you've heard his name, it has stirred something within you. Where you're saying, I wish we could get to Christmas. (laughs) I'm longing for spring. I'm longing for something better to bust open my heart that is iced over with sin. And when we get to the very passage we're in today, his name is mentioned very specifically in great description. And it's meant to invoke something within us. We can't come before our text today in any sort of neutrality. 
In verse 16, he begins to speak of those who feared the Lord. Uh, amidst all of those who are in rebellion and wickedness, who are pushing themselves away from God in their worship, who love their sin and can't even see it. And over and over, God is confronting them of their sin. And over and over, they're saying, who, us? What are we doing? And it's almost as if God just can't bust through their heart. And he tries in so many descriptive ways to say, no, this is who you are. And you're idolaters. You're like, in your idolatry, you're like harlots who are chasing other lovers. I want to shake you up so you see your sin. And amidst all of that in their, their worship, which is desecrating the temple, he gets to this point and he says, then those who feared the Lord. All of a sudden there's the mention of another group of people. Yeah, you are that bad. But from among you will come those who fear the Lord. And notice what they begin to do. They begin to speak to one another. Then those who feared the Lord, when the Lord of hosts will come and He will judge the world, He will purge the world, there will be those who fear the Lord who begin to speak to one another. Those who stand before the Lord of hosts and realize He is the one who is bringing judgment they, they fear Him and they hear His Word and they do what He says and they stand before Him in reverence and trembling before His Word to do whatever He says and then they begin to turn to one another and the word literally here is chatter. They begin to chatter with one another. There's lots of talk about this Lord of hosts who is coming. And this is in contrast to what we looked at last week, words that are being spoken by Israel that's pushing God away. How have we sinned? We haven't sinned. We can do whatever we want. It's better not to serve the Lord. And now there are those who fear the Lord who begin to speak a different message. And they they form a fellowship of obedience that causes God to draw near to them. Notice, the Lord paid attention to them. He hears their talk. He hears their speaking of His name. And He's drawn in and he, He pays attention and He hears them. And notice, a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. The word here, esteemed, means to to remember His name. And here we have a picture of the Lord remembering those who remember Him. He remembers His standards of justice and He's going to judge. But He also remembers His people who begin to remember Him and make mention of His name. And notice this book of remembrance. We, we talked about this book at, as we went through Esther. During this time there were books that kings They they would write and keep track of everyone who protected their name, defended their reputation, did as they commanded. And here the Lord looks on the earth and He sees sin and He sees wickedness, but He sees those who are remembering His name and He writes it down, this book of remembrance, to keep track of those who remember and fear Him among those who are desecrating His name. Notice what he says, verse 17. They shall be mine. On the earth, those who are overwhelmed with wickedness and rebellion, who are, who are hardened over with the curse of sin, he sees those who are remembering his name, and he says, mine. 
When he comes to assert his power and authority on the earth, he will protect those who are his, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day when I make my treasured possession mine, I will spare them as a, as a son, as a man spares his son who serves him. Uh, among the people of the earth who are in rebellion, I will come purge the earth of wickedness and rebellion, and I will make for myself a people who I spare. Uses language here of a father and his son. When the son is obedient, he is spared of chastisement. And he says, on the day I come, I will spare those who he considers here his son. And it speaks of inheritance, identity. Those who are not judged, but they are welcomed in. It's not the abstract, God's just going to not judge people or skip over them in judgment. When he comes to judge the earth, there will be a group of people who he brings in as his sons, who he will welcome as sons who he will give all rights and authority as sons to his kingdom. And he says, verse 18, And then once more you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who do not serve him. He's saying to Israel, You represent me by the way that you live, and you're living in wickedness. I will come again, and I will make a people for myself that represent righteousness, who adequately reflect my name. And once more, you will see the difference between righteousness and wickedness, those who serve me and those who refuse to. I will vindicate my name in a special group of people. And we think about, who, who, who's he talking about? Uh, all through the Bible, there's this remnant of people among Israel as they sin and as they turn their back on God, there's always a remnant of people who are faithful to God who trust in Him. And He says, that will always be the case. And when we read the end of our Bibles, we read the end of the story, we see exactly who these people are. You see, in some sense, this book of remembrance is the story of the Bible that's about the church. This group of people who will rise up from the ashes of sin and darkness as a people that God says, mine that he purchases with his blood. The story of the Bible is this story of God's people of faith from every tribe, every tongue, every nation that will rise up in the end and declare his name perfectly forever. He's speaking here of his church. In Revelation chapter 3, we, we hear of the Lamb's book of life that the church, those who are a part of the church, their names were written in before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 21, we see the righteous and the wicked stand before God and there's a book open and their, their deeds are there. And then all of a sudden the church again emerges as those who are remembered, those whose names were written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, a people who was purchased by the blood of Christ and given to Christ as a reward. And God is saying here to us in Malachi, I will remember my people. And he's saying to us here today, I will remember you. I, I will remember your name that has been written in my book from ages past to this present moment. And history will end with me remembering you. 
And, and as we look at this people here who are speaking to one another, who, who are saying to one another, it is better to fear the Lord than to be swept away in wickedness. We, we see them chattering with one another. It is better to obey the Lord. He will remember you. We, we have a picture here in Malachi of the church, of what has happened here this morning. As we have gathered here in a world cursed with the winter of sin, and we've gathered in here and said, no, there's something better coming. We have sung of a word of remembrance that was born in a manger that declares to us God hasn't forgotten you. The fact that you're here this morning is a declaration that God hasn't forgotten you. And we look at one another week after week on the, the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, and we begin to speak this book of remembrance, this word of remembrance to one another. We preach it to one another. We sing it to one another. We pray it even for one another. And we look at one another, those of us here today who are suffering. Life's not what you want it to be. There's less money. There's less joy. There's less happiness. Your marriage isn't what you wanted it to be. You thought it would be easier. And day after day after day, there's failed expectations. And we look at one another and we say, you're not forgotten. God has remembered you in Christ. He will remember you in Christ. You have not been forgotten. You are being forged, not forgotten into this special treasure that God is determined to come back and claim for Himself. You have not been forgotten. In the face of sin, some of us here today, we are struggling with sin. We are trying to break it and we are frustrated with ourselves. We just can't get past it. We've tried every Bible study. We've tried every prayer group. And we just can't bust out of this indwelling sin. What you need to hear today is God hasn't forgotten you. What you need to hear today is it is better to follow Christ than to thrive at something meaningless. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord in those moments of dark despair. He will not forget you. Remember the one who always remembers you. In hospitals, in waiting rooms, in funeral homes, we stare at one another and we say the most scandalous things before units that are beeping and flatlining. Gaudy flowers and caskets corpse laying before us and we look at a moment where it looks like God has forgotten us and yet those who fear the Lord begin to chatter he hasn't forgotten us he hasn't forgotten us his son was crushed his son was laid in a tomb for three days God did not forget his son in death he will not forget us in death and we begin to chatter this book of remembrance, these words of remembrance to one another. We look at our world today and we see political scandal, corrupt leaders arguing over tax plans and what's good for this. And we look at one another when it all looks like despair. We say, God isn't forgetting us. Look around. Look at the church here and look at the church around the world. Every government institution will finally fail before the feet of Christ. 
And yet the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the promise that the gates of hell and high taxes will not prevail against us. It won't. And we gather here today to be reminded of that. Because we so drift into the the cold darkness of our own sin. And we come in with the hot sword of the gospel. And we bust our hearts open and say, don't forget. Remember the word about the church. The word of the glory of Christ. He is coming to possess his bride. And we see the mention of his name here. Even though his name may not be mentioned It does something to us. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. The day of the Lord, which refers to the birth of Christ, but also refers to the second coming of Christ. The time of the Lord, where He comes on the earth and He asserts His rule. He begins to cast out sin. He begins to cast out demons. He begins to speak to nature and it obeys his voice as he stands on the side of a boat and tells water what to do. Those who couldn't see are now seeing. Those who couldn't walk are now walking. And we see the day of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's also a day coming where he will set his foot on the cosmos and make all things right. And he says, this day is burning like an oven. In anticipation, God is longing like like this burning oven to come and make all things right. He gives us the picture of a a stove, a fire pit full of, of brush, full of chaff. And the more that is tossed in there, it begins to overheat until it's about to explode. And he says, this is what the day of the Lord is like. God is looking down upon the earth and and He is is impatient almost, wanting to blast away sin and wickedness. He says, this day is coming when all of the arrogant and evildoers... And remember the last few weeks we've said, we like to say the world arrogant and evildoers, but he's pointing to the sins of Israel the whole while. And he says, they will be like stubble, raised to the ground. And the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. And so he's coming to his people, this vineyard that he has put in the earth, that he refers to as Israel, and he's going to raise it down as if it was fertilized with gasoline, his vineyard, Israel. So that there is no longer any stump or root, where you look around and you say, where's God's people? Well, they've been raised to the ground. They've been consumed in the fire of his oven like chaff. The evil, wicked, arrogant. Notice he says here, the day is coming that shall set them ablaze. And he makes it personal. He he makes the hot torment of fire that those will endure, that, they, they, that, that those who rebel against the Lord will endure personal. It's not just that he comes on the earth and he sets the earth ablaze. No, he says when he comes on the earth and he sets things ablaze, there will be people ablaze. Those who rebel against him, they will be set afire in this hot oven of God's wrath. And he Again, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, all the way throughout 
to remind us this is who we're dealing with. The one who rules the armies of heaven is going to come scorch the ground with his judgment. But notice again, as we hear of sin, wickedness, and judgment, notice there's also hope. Verse 2, but you who fear my name. But you who fear my name. Sin, wickedness, despair, judgment. But you who fear my name. You who stand before my authority and power. You realize that my wrath is like a burning oven that's going to destroy the cosmos. You understand it. And so you stand in reverence. And you hear what I say. And you long to obey my words. And you trust me. He says, the son of righteousness shall rise. You, you see that there are those who will be cast in the burning oven of fire and judgment, but there will also be those who stand and they see God's coming judgment of righteousness as hope. The fire that judges is also a fire of hope that will rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Notice the son of righteousness It refers to the justice of God that will come on the earth and make all things new. And we've talked about this throughout Malachi. God will purge the earth. He will refine the earth into what He wants it to be. And He will refine His people from sin and wickedness into what He wants them to be. And when this Son of Righteousness appears, notice there will be those who fear His name and they are drawn to it drawn to its warmth for healing that's in its wings. You see the irony there? The sun that comes with fire from his mouth to destroy all those who oppose him should cause us to fear. But those who fear his name, it should cause us to hope. Because when he comes, everything that causes us to despair will become undone and untrue and purged from the earth. The sin and wickedness that's in the world will be done away with when the Son of Righteousness rises. And instead of pushing Him away, there will be a people in the earth who flock to His wings to be covered and to be sheltered. And when they see His coming, notice they're like baby cows come running out of the barn at springtime. You ever seen that? They don't even know what to do with themselves. They are jumping in the stall, trying to bite their tail. They are leaping for joy because spring has come. Do, Do you see that? Do you see the scandal? There are those who should fear the coming of the Lord because it's like a hot oven. There are those who should long for the coming of the Lord because it's like the sun in springtime. And it means joy and delight for our souls that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. We're like little cows jumping around. Do you you see the fear, dread, despair, hope, excitement, thrilled? But no neutrality. You can't hear of the coming of the Lord and remain neutral. You're on one side or the other 
His coming is a sword that separates all men. And notice verse 3. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, you shall literally pack down all of my enemies in the ground. They will be burned to ashes, and you will step over them and pack them into the ground as a path to victory. He says, when when Jesus rips open the sky as the son of righteousness to come make all things new, to judge the wicked and save the righteous, you will take part in his victory. And this is where we live in the tension. We, We live in this tension where our hope, the warmth of his justice that will make all things new and get rid of anything that makes us unhappy sinful, severs relationships, makes us weep, will be non-realities forever. And we have this hope of spring and winter breaking in. But it's also a day of dread. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar. You ever poured gasoline on something and then set it on fire? It's awesome. We don't use diesel fuel at our house. We live dangerously. And when the spark hits the gasoline, woo, it's awesome. There's a day of the Lord when Jesus will speak, and woo, his fire of judgment will set the earth on fire. And it's scary. In the same way you anticipate the spark hitting the gasoline, the believer sets in anticipation knowing the day the Son of Righteousness sets all things on fire by His justice. Notice there is a day of victory where we will march with the Lord over the top of our enemies. Notice He describes the Son is a way to describe God's justice and God's righteousness. The the, the sun, this this massive star, more than a million earths could fit inside of the sun. The sun that gets up to 28 million degrees Fahrenheit at its core. Imagine... If the sun was set against you, this thing you can't control, this thing that would absolutely destroy you, consume you into nothing, imagine if it was set against you. You couldn't do anything about it. And he says, so tremble in fear because there's one greater than the sun who is set against your sin. Do you understand that? We live in a time where it's uncouth to talk about hell and judgment and torment. And some of you came to see your grandbabies sing today, and I'm sorry, but it's in the text. we got to talk about hell today. Blame, blame your grandkids for inviting you to church today, not me. They know who I am. I do this every week. But imagine that massive ball of fire if it was set against you. You couldn't do anything about it. And he's saying here, There's one greater than the sun that is set against you. But notice the way he describes the sun here. The sun 
of righteousness, which for us is the son of faithfulness. The same son that could absolutely wipe you out and destroy you is for you. The son that, that orders the day, everything centers around the sun. It makes everything happen. It's always there, always giving forth light, always, always giving forth life so that you can see, so that you can live. It's always there. You wake up in the morning. You're not worried. You're not wringing your hands. Is the sun going to be there today? Except in winter. I want more of the sun tomorrow. But, but it's always there. He says, and yet there's one more faithful than the sun who is committed to your good. And so the same one that would come and set the earth ablaze in justice will come for you, this, this, this son of righteousness, and work for your good. As a matter of fact, he already has come for your good. He, he's already come, and he himself on the cross is the one who was set ablaze for your sin and for your wickedness. He, Jesus, is the son of righteousness that's spoken of here. And, and, and as you read that, in your Bibles, you saw son of righteousness, and everybody here probably thought Jesus, even though he wasn't saying Jesus. Malachi is talking about the one who was hung on a cross and entered the oven of God's wrath for you, and he has already, already been faithful to you in Jesus by, by being consumed so you don't have to be consumed, and raised from the dead so that you will be raised from the dead. And so when he comes again on the day of the Lord, you don't run away from the sun. You run to it. You don't have to have eclipse glasses. You run to it. You want to be in the center of it. This, this one who can destroy you, who you should be fleeing from, you run to. And you begin to walk over the heads of your enemies. Trod them down. Here he points to the, the promise that Jesus gives his church that the gates of hell will not prevail against us because he's already busted through them and been consumed in hell for us. And there's a day coming where we will place our feet on the necks of the enemies of Christ. We will participate in the same way we read the story of David and Goliath. David knocks the, the giant out, and what does he do? He goes over. I love this part of the story picks the giant's head up and begins to saw through his neck bone. And there's blood spilling out. And what does the people of Israel do? They're not going back home. They say, oh, now it's time to fight. And they begin to chase down the Philistines. And it's the same picture of the church on the day of the Lord when the sky busts open. We're not hiding in rocks with everybody else. No, we say, oh, it's now time to fight. And everything he's told us in a cross and a resurrection is about to come true. An eternal kingdom is here. It is about to set foot on everything that we hate. And we go to war with Jesus on that day. But some of you today need to go to war in believing that the son of righteousness is for you. 
Some of you have come here today and just the mention of Jesus, just the reading of the Bible, just the singing of these songs, it causes something within you to push it away. Oh, I don't want to get too close. I may get burned. I may become one of these religious freaks that show up here every week. And you're pushing him away. But if you believe he's been consumed for your sin and wickedness, you have nothing else to hide. His light has already exposed you. And you run to him. And you declare to Satan, no, you have no power. Your guilt has no power over me. And you stomp his little snake head in the ground as you run to Jesus and you don't shirk away from him. You do battle with the evil one by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ today and treading, treading him under your feet like ashes and soot because the victory has already been won for you. And that's the battle some of you need to do here today. Don't run from the sun. Run to Him as your only hope. There is a call here today to live in the faithfulness of the gospel. You come here today and your life has no meaning? It's because the Son of God is not at the center of your solar system. Your life doesn't revolve around Him. And so you get off track and there's no meaning, there's no purpose, and you just don't feel fulfilled and there's no joy. Make the Son the center so that there's light, so that there's warmth, so that there's newness and life there. Notice he continues. He says, remember the law of the servant Moses, the statutes that I commanded him at Horab. He points to Mount Sinai here where Moses serves as a mediator between God and his people. And he says, I want you to, until that day, continue to remember the law. You remember the Lord by remembering the law. And by remembering the Lord, you remember who you are. He says, think back to that day at Sinai. Now, your grandparents have told you over and over again where the mountain just quaked and it shook and there was lightning and there was thunder and the mountain looked like it was going to burn down and and the people were running from it. And Moses says, no, I will go up for you and speak to God for you. And God formed His people around His law on that day. He made them. He adopted them on that day for His people. He says, I want you to remember until that day... Remember who you are. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet, another one like Moses, before the great and awesome day. Great and awesome, it means mega, and awesome means dreadful, fearful. We like to to use awesome just sort of off the cuff. Oh, that's awesome, and we don't think about it. Biblically, awesome means you're terrified. So... I commented on someone's Facebook picture yesterday. They were with their grandkid at a UK basketball game. I said, that's awesome. Literally, what I meant by that is I'm terrified by that. (laughs) It's not what we mean, but that's what the word means. Terrified of this day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers, lest I come and strike Strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There is one coming like Elijah who's greater than Malachi, this prophetic warrior who who will warn of the great and awesome day of the Lord and he will remind the people of God of who they are. And we talked a few weeks ago that this is John the Baptist who comes in the power of Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah, and he begins to speak to the people of God And reminding them who they are. Calling them to turn from fire. Turn from judgment. To be baptized. 
to say, I deserve to be immersed in judgment and to turn from their sins. But John was pointing to one even greater than himself. And he, he points here to one who will come and notice he will, he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. That the people of God will remember who they are. They will remember who God made them in the day. And, and, and he refers to the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and this is what you should have been doing all along. Remember who you are through Moses. And remember who you are through Abraham. And stay faithful to my commands. And continue to cling to my covenant promises to you. Remember who you are. I'm going to send one who will remind you who you are. To Israel, he says, when you struggle with adultery, remember who you are at Mount Sinai. There was a wedding ceremony that happened at Mount Sinai where God was bound to his people. Remember who you are at Mount Sinai. There was an adoption degree made at Mount Sinai. You are united to the Lord of hosts. You've been adopted by the Lord of hosts. Continue to cling to who you are, which is exactly what we see Jesus doing in the wilderness. Jesus, for 40 days, 40 nights, is in the wilderness. He's hungry. And the serpent comes to him and says, Hey, make this stone into bread. And what does Jesus say to the serpent? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is he doing there? Is it just some, just some strategy to overcome sin? No, he's telling the serpent who he is. Because the serpent over and over asks, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, test the Lord. If you are the Son of God, provide for yourself. If you are the Son of God, bow before me and we'll, we'll, we'll rule and reign together. And no, Jesus over and over to the serpent says, no. Because I'm the Son of God, he is remembering who he is in the face of evil. And he is trusting the Father over and over to provide for him. And so he fears the Lord and obeys the Lord. And this is how we fight sin. Every sin and every struggle in your life right now is an identity crisis for you. That's how you have to see it. When you begin to hoard things to yourself and long for things that you know God has forbidden and you say, I would just be happier in that, you are forgetting who you are as a Christian. It's an identity crisis where you're forgetting to say, no, God has provided everything for me in Christ. God has sent His Son to die for my sins and raised Him from the dead and has given me eternal kingdom. What else do I need? Man shall not live on bread alone, but the promise of this eternal kingdom that is coming to me. When you long to rescue yourself, you are forgetting who you are. When, when you want to hold up your works of righteousness to God and say, I can do it, I can do it, I can take care of this. You're forgetting who you are. Lives where there's no trust and prayer and dependence on God, you are forgetting who you are. When you seek a name for yourself instead of folding all of your gifts and your abilities and your reputation into the kingdom of Christ, you are forgetting who you are. The one who has sent his son to die for your sins and given you a resurrection and given you an eternal kingdom has adopted you. And he says, don't forget who you are. Don't forget the promise. Don't forget who you are united to. 
All sin is an identity crisis for the, the Christian. You know, prior to Aslan's coming, Lewis says the people of Narnia lived in a time when it was always winter and never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. There's no hope in the midst of winter. And as we move from the book of Malachi, we move into 450 years of winter until Christmas. Because there's no word from God. God curses his people and doesn't speak again. God alienates, in some sense, himself from his people, leaves them in a winter where there is no life, it's cold, and it seems as though there's despair. Until a star leads us to the sun in a barn. And Malachi's last word leads us to the final word, whose name is Jesus who's laid in a manger giving us life, newness, warmth. The day of the Lord has come at Christmas. But the one who's laid in the manger, when you hear that, as you, as you gather around the trees and you sort of glance over at that nativity scene that's up high on the shelf so the kids can't touch it and break it, and you see it sort of put out of the way, realize that sun is the center of God's plans and purposes. And the more and more you push him out of the way, you're fighting against the sun. You are fighting against one who can consume you and destroy you. As you walk up to that manger, realize that laying there is one who can heal you, but also one who can destroy you. There can be no neutrality before Christmas. There can be no middle ground. And the one who would bow before him, believe in his promises, believe in his life and death for you, oh, you enter into a time when it's never winter and it's always Christmas.